What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We are brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Nicole Yang, and today Chris Grenham and I are joined by Ben Golliver, who is a national NBA reporter for the Washington Post, host of the Greatest of All Talk podcast, a show he launched with Chris's cousin, Andrew Sharp, and author of Bubble Ball, a new book documenting last season's playoffs inside the Disney World bubble that comes out May 4th. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I believe the last time we chatted, I might have been in the bubble. So I'm just glad I survived that experience and then also survived the book writing experience. So it's awesome to be back with you. A lot has changed with the Celtics, I think, since the last time we talked. I feel like we caught them like right at the peak of Celtics hype uh, in the uh, playoff run. And this season's obviously been a real whirlwind. I got my digs in early, calling them the biggest disappointments of the NBA about a month and a half ago and heard from a lot of people in New England. So it is nice to see maybe slightly righted the ship a little bit here lately, but still some, you know, pretty big fundamental questions, I think, kind of emerging this season. So great to be here to chat with you about it. Yeah, we definitely got our digs in too. You're talking to two people who got our digs in early right alongside you. But before we get into that, how was the book writing experience? This is your first book, 93 Days. You kind of went right into it. So you're 93 Days. 92 nights in the bubble and then you go right into the grueling book writing experience in the middle of a pandemic which is kind of a wild all-around experience like how, how was that i actually think i mean you've heard the players talk about how the bubble was kind of so mentally demanding and it kind of was like groundhog day and it set you up to get into routines and just try to find your own little like happy space and sense of sanity and that was actually great practiced for the book writing process because, you know, I, I really wrote it in about two and a half months of just, you know, day after day after day. I mean, kind of nonstop. I was tracking my progress with spreadsheets and trying to make sure I could hit the deadline on January 1st because our goal was to get this book out in time for the upcoming playoffs. And it releases on May 4th. So we, we made it with about two weeks to spare. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. I'd never written a book before. I'm sure I made all sorts of rookie mistakes. That's just kind of how it goes. But to me, it was really important to pull together an all-encompassing story, kind of from a historical perspective about the year 2020 for the NBA. Because obviously that season, you had the China fiasco, you had David Stern's death, you had Kobe's death, you had the shutdown with Rudy Gobert's positive test. You had the four months where people like us were all saying, is there even going to be basketball? And then it pops up in the weirdest possible place, Disney World. And there's all these crazy sci-fi rules and regulations you know, governing life down there. And so I just thought, look, for future basketball fans 15 or 20 years from now who are going to look back on this and think like wait a minute they did what they went to disney world like why did they do that I wanted to make sure there was sort of like an account that pulled it all together. And so, you know, I think from that standpoint, it's not going to be a lot of surprises. Guess what? Lakers won the title, you know, Celtics go out in the conference finals. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of the beast, but there was so much going on both on and off the court with the protests, of course, with the, uh, the quote unquote boycott from the Milwaukee Bucks that having that up close and personal viewpoint on all of it. And then just having a few months to sit with it as I was going through the process and reflect back on all of it, it was really fun and gratifying. I mean, honestly, um, you know, I, I kind of look 
look back on that experience, probably the most memorable reporting experience I'm ever going to have in my career. And even like the championship celebration, there was no one there, but I'm never going to forget that. I'm going to remember that one before I remember all the rest of them. So uh, hopefully for basketball diehards who are interested in the story, they'll pick up something new. And, and for Celtics fans as well, I mean, it was a, a really interesting run for, for them with the fantastic second round series against Toronto. You got buzzer beaters, you've got big momentum swings. And then of course, the Eastern Conference Finals, it all comes apart. And, you know, that was dramatic as well. I do have to ask you about that playoff run for the Celtics because Nicole, Tom, and I have been kind of long under the theory that the Celtics might have missed their shot. You know, your co-host, Andrew Sharp, believes that the Heat should have beaten the Lakers in that final if it wasn't for injuries. Obviously, since then, Eastern Conference is kind of loaded up, at least at the top. So in your opinion, from, you know, a national writer's perspective, do you think maybe the Celtics did kind of miss their shot by losing in the Eastern Conference finals to the Heat and not getting their, their shot at the finals? Well, coming out of that game five uh, against Toronto, where they look so great, and I'm sitting there thinking, this looks like the best team in the Eastern Conference. This looks like a team that could absolutely challenge and give some real problems to the LA Lakers because they were playing so yeah. cohesively. Their five-man group was just operating on all cylinders. Um, you know, you're still waiting for Hayward to come back, so you're expecting that boost. They just played with such uh, collective energy, and you could kind of almost see like a twinkle in Brad Stevens' eye. He doesn't give a lot away, right? But you could kind of tell there was, uh, oh, we're, we're on to something here a little bit. And even coming out of that game seven against Toronto, where Kemba is crowning Jason Tatum as a superstar, he's like, you know, you saw him do it in game seven. Here he is stepping up. You know, you're in a situation there where, you know, not only is it kind of their title window, but, you know, potentially, you know, going for the next two or three years, if everything stays on course, they're going to be a real problem. And obviously everything got away from them during the offseason as well. I mean, it wasn't just that heat series where, you know, the, the Hayward decision, I, I still don't totally understand that. Even the deadline move when you're moving Tice, you know, to me, that's kind of a, you know, just a casualty of poor planning, you know, earlier on. And then they couldn't really control what Brooklyn was going to do. And, and Brooklyn came through and just kind of essentially took their spot, in my opinion. So now they're they're totally cast differently. But I do feel like this era of Celtics teams, and, and maybe this is goes for Brad as the coach, too. They seem to do better when they're the underdogs a little bit, right? When the when the focus is off them, because when they came into that Eastern Conference Finals, I think a lot of people saw it very even. And I certainly actually picked Boston to win that series. And you could tell early on those first couple of games, they weren't necessarily comfortable. It wasn't like they were shell-shocked or overwhelmed. I mean, that game one went right down to the wire. Uh, but you saw the kind of the explosion in game two, you know, late, uh, you know, late after in the post game, but also just down the stretch where a lot of frustration came out. And it was like, huh, well, maybe these guys aren't quite ready for prime time. And then you start to have those questions about al alignment of age. You know, where are Tatum and Brown in their careers compared to where's Kemba in his career? And is the end coming more quickly for Kemba than we maybe we expected in terms of high-level all-star basketball? And so I think some of those things kind of started to show through a little bit. You know, it, it looked so bright. And then in hindsight, you know, maybe it wasn't quite as, uh, as rosy as we expected. Yeah, you touched on the sort of blow up that happened in the locker room after game two when the Celtics fell down in the series 0-2. We obviously weren't there, so it's sort of hard to gauge. We experienced our fair share of like players only meetings when Kyrie was on the team, but this seems like <laughs> something that was totally different and chairs were getting thrown, water bottles were getting thrown, Marcus Smart took the quote from The off. quote from Gary Washburn was the team is imploding. It, it seemed like it was a very big deal, but it was tough with the little, I don't know, we, we weren't there. You're wondering like how much residual effect that fight really had since it did seem to be between or among the key players, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and Kemba Walker. So if you want to start just by sort of recapping what you remember from that night. 
Well, so first things first, we're in a gym that's kind of more like a small college or a high school gym compared to an NBA arena. So the typical security barriers that you would have between a locker room and the reporters were just not there. So, you know, we're standing 10 or 15 feet outside that locker room while we're waiting for them to come out and do post game. And so, yeah, you could hear things. I mean, it was the same locker room actually where the Bucks had their protest, their shutdown. And we could hear them on a conference call calling people back in Wisconsin to, you know, have team phone calls. We couldn't make out exactly what was being said, but we could kind of hear some of the chatter coming through the walls. And so to me, look, I've heard worse fights, right? I've actually been yelled at by NBA players worse than um, what I was able to necessarily make out explicitly. Marcus Smart was mad. There's no question about it. I mean, he came storming out. You can imagine what a pissed off Marcus Smart looks like. Just, you know, pick one of his ejections, you know, it's kind of like, you know, that level of like, oh man, that, that kind of a feeling to it. But it didn't carry out into the locker room. Nobody went chasing after him. I, you know, I just certainly didn't, uh, I wasn't dodging chairs or anything like that. I mean, it, there did sound like there was a real ruckus in there. But I'm just saying, you know, even from 10 or 15 feet away, I wasn't thinking like, well, we need to call security here. To me, it just didn't quite rise to that level. But I think what was really important about it, it was it was the key players kind of going back and forth with each other. And I would go back to how well they played in the previous series. Tatum was the man. And that's how it's supposed to be. Tatum needs to be the man. And you get into some of these late game situations throughout that playoff run. And the ball was actually in Marcus Smart's hands a lot. He was taking a lot of shots in key moments. And I found myself, if I was frustrated by anything with the Celtics before they actually kind of, uh, you know, lost to the heat, it was that Tatum wasn't doing enough in late game moments. And, you know, he just wasn't even getting enough shot attempts or going to the basket hard enough or whatever else. You know, the, the distribution was just off a little bit. And I don't think Marcus is selfish at all. I think that's exactly the opposite. He's an incredibly unselfish glue guy team player. But I also think he was like, hey, this is it. This is the Easter Conference Finals. Somebody needs to step up. If you guys aren't going to step up, I'm going to do it. You know, we, we, he's going to always err on the side of being too proactive rather than too reactive. And so I do think that there was this kind of situation where as it's getting away from them, as you're kind of having these moments, you know, kind of like gut check where you're getting just run off the court in that second half, Marcus Smart's probably thinking like, why am I playing so hard? Why are these guys, other guys not reacting? And they're probably saying, well, like, why are you taking all the shots for the last uh, two series and all these key moments, right? Like, that's just not who you are. And so it was one of those things to me, that fight, in my view, was just evidence of the fact that Jason Tatum has all NBA level talent, but I just don't think he's quite at this stage of his career, you know, going back to last year, that all NBA level leader, right? He's just not necessarily that super vocal, everybody hop on my back type guy. And this season, you know, we've seen a little bit more of it recently. That's my favorite version of Jason Tatum. when He's just like, all right, you know, 50 points, here we go, let's do it. And I understand his COVID situation could be limiting his effectiveness, but, you know, to me, you know, some of their struggles this year has been because you get into these situations where you're blowing huge second half leads or, you know, games are slipping away in the fourth quarter. Momentum is turning really hard. And that's on your best player to kind of like, you know, say, all right, I'm taking control of this. We're slowing the action down. Everything is going through me. I'm going to kind of make this right. And that's a natural evolution process. We've seen that for all sorts of young players. And I think the expectations on Tatum are higher because he has had so much success early in his career. People expect him to be able to solve everything. And, you know, to me, he just wasn't quite there in that Easter Conference Finals. He wasn't quite on that level where it's it's like, all right, everybody answers to me. We're going to solve this and we're going to go forward on the same page. So I wouldn't say it was like some looming Celtic civil war where they had to like, you know, completely overhaul their core. Because I think if if that was the case, you would have seen a different decision with Hayward probably, right? You would have seen yeah. Danny say, all right, well, if we just can't make this work with Marcus, Marcus becomes a trade piece. We pay Hayward and then we kind of go forward with a different group. Or I mean, you could certainly trade Marcus Smart very easily given his contract, right? So my guess is they were able to put it back together 
Brad, I actually described this in the book, but Brad, after that fight, I mean, he looked like the straight A student who got called in to the high school's principal office because his three friends all got into some big trouble. And he was just trying not to lie to the principal without giving anything away, not giving anything up. And, you know, Brad to me, he's like, he's a guy where if you're on an airplane, he's going to be going to make sure everybody else has their oxygen mask on, you know, if they start hitting before he's going to put his own on. That's just his personality. And he was trying so hard not to make things worse that night. And I think it actually worked. If you go back and see how they responded the next game, it was a great team response. And I thought they lost to a better team. Miami just beat them. You know, I don't think it was some sort of like, you know, big fracture moment. I thought their togetherness was really strong through the rest of that series. So in the book, uh, Bubble Ball, I give Brad a lot of credit for how he handled that and how hard he made life for reporters. Because, you know, you can imagine Phil Jackson, that situation, going to some like deep cut Zen master mind <laughs> games, like calling out Marcus Smart, pushing all these different buttons. Or you could imagine Popovich just saying some crazy stuff to distract everybody and put all the attention on him. I mean, go right down the list of these famous coaches. You know, Doc would come out with some like five minute long joking monologue about, oh yeah, I got hit with a chair. You know, he'd have like a fake ice pack on his head, you know, whatever he could do to kind of like diffuse the tension, right? And Brad's just sitting there like, yes, sir. No, sir. You know, he's just kind of going through his little thing and it worked for them. You know, that, that is another question though, as you're going forward. And this is a question for every modern NBA team. You know, how long can cores last together and how long do they stay bought into the coach's voice? And I, I do think, you know, there's been a, some stretches this season where it's like, I don't know if they're listening to anybody when they're out there. You know, they play so flat. They let these games go. And so, again, it, it's nice to see Tatum reasserting himself. And it does kind of feel like maybe Brad's getting a better hold and, and pushing some buttons a little bit better here recently, too. Yeah. What was your perspective as this team was like fumbling earlier in the year? Because at least in the local markets, granted, some of it's talking radio heads and that sort of stuff. But there was a lot of heat being put on Danny Ainge, being put on Brad Stevens as this team was starting to, to fumble and they went through some really rough patches as recent as a couple weeks ago. From your perspective, was a lot of the is Brad Stevens on the hot seat kind of talk? What was your take on that? Do you think it was just a little out of hand or do you think it was kind of relevant? I think we need more heat, honestly, in, in the NBA. You know, I love the passion from the fan base and people trying to demand accountability. One of my favorite things that came out of Boston this year was Danny come out and say, yeah, some of this is on me. It's like, darn right. Some of this is on you. I mean, <laughs> where have the last five years of draft picks? What have those gotten you, right? Why didn't you take care of the Hayward situation so you didn't get stuck with the trade exception? Why did these other maneuvers wind up putting you in a situation where Tice, who I really like, and was yeah. giving them great minutes in last year's playoffs, has to be um, the sacrificial Lamb, Tristan Thompson, how'd that go for you? You know, I mean, you just kind of go. And also the one that nobody saw coming, so it's not fair to kind of criticize, but Terry Rozier outplaying Kemba Walker this season. Wow. You know, like that is wild. And so, yes, he's accountable and he should have done that. And I was glad that he did. And I thought the heat there was was totally appropriate. It's tough because, look, if there had been fans in TD Garden all year, it wouldn't have been the media's job to do this. You would have had fans booing yeah. because they know good basketball and they know bad basketball. And the Celtics were playing bad basketball. They were not playing together. They were folding in key moments and it wasn't fun to watch. Now, personally, I was disappointed because I came into the season thinking Boston was going to win the East. And I don't like it when they make me look bad. So personally, I was uh, frustrated. Thankfully, Brooklyn came along, made the James Harden trade, made me happy. And, uh, you know, so I could kind of like hop on that one. But I've loved what Jalen 
done this season, taking a step forward on and off the court, incredible player. I think that Tatum's getting into the groove back to where we wanted to see him. My biggest concern with these guys, this is both this season and going forward in the future is Kemba Walker, because I look at his shot charts, his efficiency percentages and all that. He's just a different player. I mean, mid range, long twos, threes percentages are all way down. You look in terms of what, what percentage of his shots come at the basket. He's getting there way less than previous years. Right. And so if this is a guard who's, entire value is on the offensive end because he's never been a defensive stopper he's a guy who has to get by you going towards the basket get layups get to the free throw line he's not doing that as much as he used to and he also has to hit his jump shot otherwise you know what's he really doing out there and there's just been major major regression there and i'm sure some of it is um injury related but that's a huge contract to have on your books it really handcuffs how you can maneuver he's not going to have a ton of trade value everyone out there is kind of seeing the same thing that we're seeing and so it's kind of like not quite as bad as a russell west or a John Wall type situation, but it's more in that direction as opposed to, hey, you're the next Kyrie Irving. You're going to be the stand-in starting all-star point guard for the Boston Celtics. And that's a big problem. And that's just tough to overcome. So, you know, going back to your first question about like, well, what does, you know, Boston's long-term future look like? Is it a little bit more dim than we expected? To me, Kemba's right in the middle of that, you know, where it's it's going to be really hard to work around him. You know, he had a okay playoffs, you know, last year, good at some times, but when it really mattered, he was a weak link. And I think when you're looking at matchups this year, potentially in the playoffs, I think it's going to be even worse. To me, the red flag with Kemba is like the drives to nowhere. You know, he gets himself into the paint. Usually two years ago, he goes up with a layup, you know, kind of slithers into some contact. Maybe he gets an and one. Now he sees the big and he just does a little spin dribble back around and he rethinks about it. And there's, you like the drive and kick action. So that's good. But the drives to nowhere where it's just like, oh, not quite turning the corner, not quite getting that layup off, just kind of taking everybody out of stuff is where it gets to be problematic. So to me, scale back his role if you can. And I think they've been doing that a little bit lately, more from Tatum. That's my formula kind of going forward here in the short term. It's funny that you mentioned how the fans could have held Danny Ainge more accountable because once fans were allowed back at TD Garden this season, it was maybe not the peak of the Celtics struggles, but definitely right in the thick of it. And the very first game back, they were booed. And it was music to my ears. I loved it. It was so overdue. And I'm glad it happened, honestly, because sometimes you need that feedback. You need that jolt. It's tough. I couldn't play in these empty arenas, you know? And if you go back to the very beginning of the pandemic, what did LeBron say? Oh, no fans? I'm not even going to play. He couldn't even wrap his mind around the idea. These guys are used to, they're conditioned to getting that kind of, you know, feedback response in game time. There's no way Boston plays these second halves all season long like they have if they had home crowds breathing down their throats saying, come on, cheering them along when things go well, getting on them if things aren't going well. And so to talk about Brad Stevens and, you know, it's one of the best coaches in the NBA. I would be treasuring him. And I like to make a lot of jokes at Danny Angie's expense. He's one of the best GMs in, in the NBA. So to me, I don't really see a lot of hot seat talk there. That makes a lot of sense. But I do think that, you know, if they go out in the first round of this year's playoffs, which is looking like sort of the most likely um, situation, there's going to have to be some hard questions about the roster kind of going forward in terms of, you know, the, the chemistry questions that you guys are asking, but also just, you know, role definition and, and how are you going to kind of balance things going forward. The one positive is some of these younger guys are getting some real minutes. And so next year they're going to come back and they're not going to be question marks. They're going to be known quantities and that helps. And they're going to have more confidence. There's no doubt, but I just think it's tough. I mean, look, Brooklyn's got a big three that scares everybody in the league, not just the Eastern conference. And they've become the hot ticket. 
And so, you know, that, that rise of a, an alter superpower, I mean, alternate superpower, there's not really an easy answer to that because, you know, like I said, they've already got their big contracts on the books. You know, there's not a ton of flexibility for Boston going forward. Yeah. Before we get more into what the future might look like, I'm curious for your thoughts just on like the short term, obviously the Celtics start the season eight and three top of the East, but then they essentially hover around 500 often dipping below 500. Now they're at their probably biggest peak since the beginning of the season. Which which direction do you think we're trending toward? Do you think it's going to be the inevitable four five? I just, the funniest thing that would happen is if they found a way to get Philly in the playoffs and upset Philly. That's kind of what honestly that would be so funny. And I, I guess it would probably have to be like a one four in the second round. You know, look, some of these teams that are above them in the Eastern Conference aren't even playoff teams. I mean, come on, Charlotte Hornets, like really, you know, Atlanta Hawks. They've been playing better, so I'm going to leave them out of this slander. But in New York Knicks. I mean, some of these teams, like we have to talk ourselves into them being these playoff teams or this play-in tournament and all this, like Boston, you're better than this. You shouldn't be in this conversation with these teams. I mean, come on. So I think once it all shakes out, Miami and Boston probably are going to be, you know, rising up a little bit. I think Atlanta's got staying power. So you know that limits Boston's ceiling in the standings just a little bit. Do you have a favorite team? Like, let's say they don't make it to the four or five, because let's say that's like Atlanta and Miami. If they have to play one of the big three, do you have like a favorite or a least favorite in terms of who they would have to get? I mean, I think you're onto something with Philly just because of the psychological impact of their oh, past. Yeah. You know, it's a different team, but still like. I agree with that, but also. Also, Philly has just toyed with them this season, like every single game. Again, it's a different beast in the postseason, but man, the Celtics have looked really, really bad. So out of that like elite tier, there isn't a good pick. It's pick your poison. But like Milwaukee would be the team in my mind that the Celtics match up with best. Like Brooklyn, they're not even in the same stratosphere as the Nets as far as I'm concerned right now. And, and the Sixers have just looked really good against them so far. I mean, tough matchups both ways there. You know, it's because, yeah. you know, you don't have Tice or you're playing Thompson or the Williams, whatever, right. and you're dealing with them. Yeah, we, we established in the last episode that Tristan Thompson is the worst Joel Embiid <laughs> defender in the league. So <laughs> now I understand the desperation rumors. I hey, can Boston get Andre Drummond or the deadline. And we just need a guy who gets killed by Embiid only half yeah. as much as our current guys. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and Giannis is going to cause some matchup problems now, too, because, mm. you know, the last couple of playoffs when they have matched up or, you know, uh, series, Giannis has done a really good job of getting the basket against Boston. And now when you don't have Tice, you know, who I think I, I view him just because with his length, like he, he's a, probably a better matchup than some of these other guys and his mobility, you know, that, that just makes it even tougher. But the funniest scenario is finding a way to kind of shock dog, shock the Sixers, ruin Tobias Harris's future all-star snub campaigns, just all of it together in one blow would be hilarious. You know, one thing I watch if it does come to that, I think it got under discussed Ben Simmons being injured during the first round last year because there was just so much chaos with Philly, right? So it was just like, oh, that's just one more thing that's going wrong for the Sixers and the Horford thing's not working and all these other different situations. Brett Brown's on the hot seat. Philly would not have gotten swept if they had Simmons because they just could not match up with Tatum. They couldn't match up with the wings. Yeah. Harris wasn't ready for it. Matisse Tybel wasn't ready for it. I think if you're in a situation where Simmons is healthy, that series is going to look different just by his presence alone. 
And uh, I think most of the focus would be on like, okay, well, how does anybody stop Embiid? Because he's been in that kind of top five MVP combo this year. But I do feel like Simmons's presence, you know, that could kind of flip that storyline from last year, which by the way, was also a really funny storyline. Boston just completely sweeping Philly and Brett Brown getting all red faced after these games. Everybody's <laughs> getting technical fouls in game four. It's just all falling apart. I mean, some real highlights from the bubble. And actually I dig into that. Maybe the Celtics fans in bubble ball, they're not going to like the Celtics chapters as much as the Sixers collapse chapter. So uh, <laughs> another good reason for your listeners to uh, to cop the book. To yeah. your point, there are some Celtics fans that um, called Tobias Harris the Celtics MVP in a Celtics <laughs> Sixers series. So I came up with a new Tobias Harris rule this week, which is if you shoot below 14% on threes in the playoffs, the following year you cannot campaign for the All-Star game. Doesn't matter. Period. It's not allowed. It's against the rule. I'm working to get that ratified through the NBA and uh, the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. So I'll get back to you guys when I'm when I get my approval. No, like it's so bad, too, because, OK, so Simmons goes out. You're like, all right, well, where are you going to look to for help? And like Embiid's just sitting there by himself like, all right, I guess I'm going to pass myself the ball and shoot and rebound. Maybe I should, you know, like it's just ridiculous because, you know, Harris was just nowhere to be found. You know, we'll see if it's different this year because their lineups make better sense. Their combinations make more sense. I'm still very skeptical because he's just never done it and i think he's one of the biggest x factors kind of going forward into these playoffs i think with celtics fans when they look back on that philly sweep it's like oh yeah they just wiped the floor with them it's like well they were missing ben simmons it was seemed like utter chaos from an outsider's point of view inside that locker room so they were not in a good state so that's very true looking at this year's playoffs that the ben simmons factor is really important another team that kind of worries me honestly say the celtics were to grab the four seed well, then they get a four or five with Miami. Like Miami's a tough team. The Heat have been a different team also this year, though. Their offense has been really pretty ugly, pretty spotty, yeah. hit and miss, depending on who's in the lineup and who's not. It just really hasn't looked the same. And there's probably a takeaway to be made here. I mean, you look at Boston, you look at Miami, you look at the Lakers, and now you look at the Nuggets and you say, well, what was the impact on the final four teams of last year's playoffs on this season? All four teams at this point have underdelivered in terms of the standings where we yeah. thought they would be with the exception of Denver, but they just lose Murray. And so now they're dealing with the same kind of strife that the other three are dealing with. You know, it's been constant injury issues and COVID issues for the Heat this year. Boston's had its share, more than its fair share, really. I mean, it got pretty scary there in January. And, and Tatum's saying he's still dealing with it with the inhaler and all that. When we're looking at not only the impact of the shortened season, the condensed season, the quick turnaround, but we're also saying, okay, well, we knew it wasn't going to be fair for the teams that went deep into the playoffs last year compared to this year. Or like the New York Knicks, congratulations for racing out of the gate this year. You had eight months to prepare for it. You know, I'm sorry, I'm not getting super excited about Julius Randle's breakout year. You know what I mean? Compared to Boston or Miami, where you're turning around in two or three months, it's a much, much trickier challenge. It's much harder on their bodies. And so, you know, I think when you're looking at that matchup with Miami, like on paper, I would take Miami. The problem is like the on paper version of either one of these teams just hasn't been who we expected. And don't write off the Atlanta Hawks so quickly. You know, they're, they're playing some pretty good basketball now, man. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think you want those guys in the playoffs either. It's true. Trey Young dropped like 38 and 43 on the Celtics, I think so. <laughs> the Celtics have a long, they have horrible issues against lead guards. They, they just cannot stop any lead guard. So that's very true. Trey Young could single-handedly will the Hawks to a series win against the, against the Celtics. But I mean, before we kind of wrap up, we should, like Nicole talked about before, talk about like the long-term implications of this team and kind of where they go from here, assuming they don't make a deep run in this playoffs. 
They're pretty limited salary cap wise, like you said. They don't have a lot of flexibility moving forward. Is this a situation where this offseason, say they do lose round one, round two, do they look into shipping off Jalen Brown in an effort to go and get like a Bradley Beal type player who could be on the market down the road? Like, where do you see them going in terms of having to make some serious decisions moving forward? Like, what do you expect from them? Well, so the first thing I would say is, um, you know, in a typical year, I think that they would be looking to try to move Kemba after the season because they would be saying, well, look, we can't carry this giant third contract. We know who our two centerpieces are. Kemba thing is not working out. Let's play money ball. Let's trade his contract off and find a guy who can give us like 80% of his value for half the price, right? And do something like that. The problem, and we saw this at the deadline, is people don't want to take on the future money. Very few teams wanted to trade for future money at this year's deadline. I mean, Chicago was unusual in, in taking on Vucevic, but he's on a you know pretty fair value deal. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of big contracts didn't move. And so it's going to be not a seller's market in that situation for Ainge. That's going to be tough. And you may just be kind of stuck with that. John Wall and Westbrook had to be traded for each other because there was going to be absolutely nobody else interested, whether it was Charlotte, New York. I mean, none of those teams really kind of stepped up and there aren't going to be a ton of teams with uh, salary cap space to take on a Kemba in like an unbalanced trade. So I think it's going to be a somewhat quiet offseason for Boston. Their big decision is going to be Fournier, in my opinion. Yeah. And you're otherwise you're going to be shopping for, you know, the mid-level Tristan Thompson types. You know, I don't see any situation where they trade Tatum or Brown. I mean, I think that they're locked in with those two guys and they should be. Both those guys are awesome. They're exactly what you're looking for in the modern NBA. you got to find the right fit point guard. But to me, the two guys that you'd be looking at potentially to move would be Smart and Walker. Yeah, that's another thing too. If you are trying to move Walker, even in a tough market like this one, like in years past, there would be more teams willing to take him on with that money because of his player value, his on-court value. And that's just not there anymore. Like we were talking about earlier, like he just doesn't have the same on-court value, whether it be his lack of getting to the rim, his just burst just isn't there like it used to be. And so you're certainly if you're an opposing team looking at that incoming figure like not not yep. for what he's providing on the court at this point point. and guys who are kind of in worse versions of that we saw with Blake Griffin where the option was just yeah. buyout and I don't right. think Walker is at that stage right he's kind of stuck in between where he's more in the John Wall stage so you get what you can out of him you're kind of stuck with him you just kind of cross your fingers you you know and then you try to find a, a role that works for him to me less is more with Kemba and that goes for this year and, and potentially next year as well but we'll also see I mean this was a short offseason for everybody. You know, you get you get back to that normal cycle. Let's say they go out in the first round and now you can rest all the way until October. Maybe guys come back and look a little bit different. You know, it doesn't yeah. you, you don't necessarily that's not just for the Celtics. That's kind of for everybody. You know, I think that we're in a situation where a lot of people are in like mile 21 of the marathon right now. That has been like the last, you know, 18 months. And this pandemic season has been really tough and stressful on these players. I mean, they can't go out. They can't do any fun. They have to deal with the huge travel burden. They're playing every other night. It has been rough. And I think they've actually done a pretty good job of not complaining all that much about it, um, all things considered. And so you give everybody a long summer. Everybody starts fresh next year. And and there's reason to say, okay, well, maybe it's not the end of the world. But I'm with you. I, I don't see a huge trade market for Kemba developing. And the other problem is you need a point guard. So you can't just like salary dump right. him and, you know, attach a bunch of picks and just to get off of them you need someone who can come back and play that spot so you know i think that they're most likely kind of stuck there oregon's own oregon's own peyton pritchard i mean i don't don't know So they really call him Fast PP. Is that a thing or no? Yeah, that is a thing. That was his old, when they drafted him, that was his Twitter handle, I guess. And so huh. all Celtics fans on Twitter started calling him Fast PP. And I've never seen a newly acquired player change a social media handle so quickly. He changed well, it right away. Good. I'm glad he did because I was going to say, there's a lot of good marketing and branding firms up there in Portland. You got White and <laughs> Kennedy, great advertising firm. You got to do better than Fast PP. 
Yeah, well, he's been like kind of a, a rare bright spot a little yeah. bit, huh? Yeah, yeah, he, he hasn't been bad at all. I mean, much better than I think everyone expected. Like early in the year when they were really going through their struggles, they would have been in a much lower place if it weren't for him. Like he was a serious rotation piece for them. That was a, a great contributor. And yeah, he has hit some rookie walls like in terms of running the offense, but he's been very good for a late first round pick. Very solid. Well, on behalf of all Oregonians, we thank Forbes <laughs> for its fascinating coverage of his high school story at Westland. I loved seeing that. Four straight titles. And the coach sold him out a little bit. He's like, yeah, he really wasn't our best player in the freshman year. I love that quote that he gave to you. <laughs> no, I mean, Peyton Pritchard's an Oregon high school basketball legend, much like the guy who drafted him, Danny Ainge, yeah. who still talked about the old heads in Portland. Like the, I'm talking about like Dwight James, Kerry Eggers, the guys who have seen it all. They've been around basketball in Oregon for 40 years, 50 years. They'll tell you Danny Ainge is the best high school player athlete across all sports who ever came out of the state. And they stick to that. And they will never hear another argument. You know, Damon Stoudemire's coming up. Kevin Love's coming up. They're like, no, no, no. It was Danny. <laughs> I got a PR pitch in my inbox this morning that was like each state's favorite athlete of all time. And Oregon's was Danny Ainge. Maybe Dwight like, rigged the poll. You know, <laughs> he's at, he's at uh, NBC Sports Northwest, you know, longtime Blazers commentator. You know, he, he goes back to those 70s, 80s days where Danny was at North Medford, I believe. That's awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Listeners, if you enjoy the Celtics, you will enjoy Greatest Small Talk because Ben's co-host, Andrew, is a huge Celtics fan, whether he'll <laughs> oh, yeah. it or not. It's a great listen, so please consider subscribing as well as buying Ben's book, Bubble Ball. It comes out May 4th. Ben, anything else you'd like to add about any of the multiple publications or affiliations you rep? Um, yeah. or Careful. Careful. Don't let me get the uh, the open plugs because we're going to be here for another hour. Now, I would just say if people want like a preview of the book, it's on my Instagram at ben.golver. I did like a little unboxing video, just kind of show off different little features of the book. And you know, one cool thing is I got pictures from the bubble in the book as well. So, you know, it, it's kind of gives you like an up close and personal scene. So if you want to see Joel Embiid with his head in hand, brow furrowed, frustrated by the Boston Celtics, you know, dismantling the Sixers, you know, you got a great picture from about three feet away, you know, right there in the middle. So look, I, I think I'm selling this thing as hard as I possibly can right now. So you better cut me off. But thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for coming on. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.